0: What's up, Scots? Welcome to the Jesus in Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow Mel Gibson fan, Graham Hooten. And our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what they might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today, we're talking about Braveheart. And Graham, my one question for you is, what is
1: freedom? Freedom. I feel like i have to say it in a scottish accent not that i can really pull it off i'm not really sure the difference between scottish and irish sorry don't sue me but it's a great question i feel like we've got a couple different versions of freedom in this film we've got civil slash uh, political freedom from the tyranny of the english and we also got this individual personal freedom that i think we get to see developed over the course of the film so Multiple uh, instances of freedom, maybe a little bit of different context, but nonetheless, a fantastic film, and I am thrilled to dive into Braveheart with you today. Me too. This is a top five all-time favorite for me, so
0: this podcast inevitably will not do it justice. We can't even begin to come close in an hour Mm -hmm. of capturing the magic of this superstar. Of course. What is it for you that makes this a top five? I think the biblical themes are clear and resonant. Uh, Movies like this just don't really get made anymore. I think there is, like you said, the thrilling plot of external freedom, civil freedom, based on Scotland's first war revolution against England and Edward I, but uh, also sort of the internal freedom, like you talked about, of what does it mean to be principled and to be willing to die for those principles to live a life of integrity? It reminds me of... This Theodore Roosevelt quote um, that I actually saw from a movie Snowden that I watched earlier this week, but it's, I think it's on a monument in DC. I probably saw it on an eighth grade field trip and forgot it, but this is what (laughs) Roosevelt writes. A man's usefulness depends upon his living up to his ideals insofar as he can. It's hard to fail, but it's worse never to have tried to succeed. All daring and courage, all iron endurance of misfortune make for a finer, nobler type of manhood. Only those are fit to live who do not fear to die, and none are fit to die who have shrunk from the joy of life and the duty of life. So a lot of lofty language there, but I think it does draw a clear parallel to Braveheart and really to what we see in the Jesus story of, are you willing to die for your conviction? Are you willing to sort of leave everything behind to follow this guy? So that's working, I guess, both on a William Wallace level, dying for the cause, and on just a I'm a Scott
1: following William Wallace level. I'm willing to throw in my lot with these revolutionaries. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, powerful and beautiful depiction of what genuine sacrifice looks like and what it looks like to live for something bigger than yourself. So I think we love heroes like this, people who are just single-handed, committed to an ideal. Reminds me a little bit of Captain America. Obviously, Hero's Journey, there's a ton of these different kinds of heroes, but I think one of the appeals of Captain America specifically is his undying commitment to his principles. And similarly similarly to Batman, uh, his ideal that he will never kill somebody is 100% all in commitment to, uh, to that ideology. And so I think we like these characters. And this is not to say that uh, William Wallace is a one-dimensional character and that he doesn't struggle to make these decisions because he 100% does. But at the same time, he chooses the hard thing in the midst of adversity. And I think we all want to see a little bit of ourselves in that, even if uh, it's, a, it's hard to see.
0: Yeah, that's a great point that you make about internal struggle. Like, is all of William Wallace's conflict in this movie outside of him? Is it sort of like the Scottish revolutionaries versus the English? Or is there kind of an internal struggle? Because, you know, in conventional writing structure, we have three, some will say four things that every character, central character at least, should have. A want, like a character needs to want something. Like, Rudy wants to be on the Notre Dame football team. Uh, A need what's a good example of this? Han Solo in Star Wars wants to pay off Jabba and return to smuggling and not help, but he needs to learn that he can help and be a part of something bigger than himself. So his want and his need are fundamentally opposed there. And then a ghost, like something in the character's past that informs their present day need specifically. And then some will say like a lie, like the lie that the character believes. So like maybe the lie Han Solo believes is that he can't uh help a cause or that he's not good enough or something like that. But these things are all very interrelated. But anyways, I was trying to think about that regarding William Wallace. Like, does he have a want and a need, or is it just like his want is freedom and his need is freedom and they're kind of one in the same? The only thing I kind of came to the conclusion of as far as giving him a little more complexity is maybe that he has the struggle between can I trust the politicians can I trust the nobles because like in the beginning of the story sort of like why do we need the nobles maybe and by the end maybe he's kind of convinced that Robert the Bruce is really the ticket to what he's trying to do and maybe they actually can come together and that it ultimately ends up being his undoing and kind of a tragic ending so I don't know what do you see there
1: yeah because it seems like character growth for him would be the opportunity to trust other people invite them into his mission with him obviously that ends up backfiring on him, and that I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie is when he discovers that Robert the Bruce has turned on him, and there's this look of betrayal, like just pure sadness in his eyes, and we can see that his point of character growth has actually been the very thing that's turned around and hurt him, and that the same thing happens when he goes and uh, tries to negotiate with the English nobles, and is ultimately captured, but... Um, maybe this is necessary in the same way that Jesus being betrayed by Judas was necessary in going to the cross. And that doesn't say anything about Jesus's lack of a development as a character or as an individual, but maybe the necessity of facing the dark consequences of the world, even when we do do the right thing. So I don't know if that really answers your question, because I think I'm still wrestling with that myself.
0: It won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Makeup. I can't believe it didn't win Best Original Score. One thing that I absolutely adore about this movie is the music. It's composed by James Horner, who's my second favorite score composer of all time behind the goat, John Williams. But... James Horner also did Titanic, and honestly, just like so many movies, you should go look up his filmography. But the music in this movie is stunning to me. It tells so much of the story. I There's a director I like named Dean Dubois. He did the How to Train Your Dragon series, and he talks about how for him, music is 50% of the equation of what makes a good movie. That's coming from a director. He says half of it is story and what I do from a directing level, and the other half is purely music. I don't, that might be overstating it for me. I don't know what the percentage breakdown would be for me, but I know that relative to the rest of the field per se, I'm in the 99th percentile of appreciating music or like valuing that. I think it's like the biggest distinction between watching a movie and reading a book and the music to me in Braveheart is phenomenal. Listen to some of this right here.
1: that not just do something special for you it makes me want to learn how to play the bagpipes uh i think it's interesting when we think about the bagpipes because you hear a lot of them in this film and when do we hear them now in modern movies i was immediately brought to police funerals or like police parades i don't know it brought me back to the uh the dark war- night yeah it brought me back to the dark night a little bit it made me think of the departed as well but there's something ominous but also really beautiful and powerful about uh the bagpipes and gallivanting through the hills it actually it also reminded me of a song i've been listening to a lot called future past by john mark mcmillan um he's a great worship artist and releases a lot of good music you should go check him out but uh, that song starts with a little bagpipes intro which it almost like when you hear bagpipes you think at least for me i think fog in the middle of scotland and i'm all in on it (laughs) Yeah, the bagpipes are
0: cool. I also love the strings. And I think the movie just does a great job of tying the musical themes or the leitmotifs to the characters in the moment so that when they come back, we sort of know there's a subconscious connection of music and story.
1: But I've seen this movie many, many times. I want to hear your thoughts. (laughs) You know, uh, funny thing, this is my second time watching this movie. I forget how long it is, a solid three hours of just, we're going in. Yeah, it's bloated. One of the things that uh, stuck out to me is that the famous Braveheart, like William Wallace speech at Sterling is only halfway through the movie. I was like, that has to be with like 20 minutes left. Not even. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's early. (laughs) And so um, that, that stood out to me. I think just the fact that, they Like you said, they don't make movies like this anymore. I was reading that the Battle of Sterling took six weeks to film, and they had 90-plus hours of footage, and they hired, I think, a bunch of Scottish reserves in their military to come fill in as the extras. And so there's something that's really authentic and real about this non-CGI film that is purely natural, and, and the fact that they're taking thousands and thousands of extras and throwing them into this... Great land of Scotland, but I think it's uh, awesome. It makes me it <laughs> it brings me back to like Wild at Heart by uh, John Eldridge. I think for young men, it's kind of a uh, man. I would love to live that life of riding through the Scottish Highlands with Marin on the back of my horse, and you know, not even wearing underwear. Um, but I really enjoy the film. I think it's it is long. It I would say it is bloated, and it could stand to lose half an hour, but Other than that, uh, it's hard to argue with this classic. Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot I want to touch on there. First, I agree with you about the
0: authentic feel and tone of the movie, although I will say as a caveat, a lot of the battle stuff was shot in Ireland and there are some serious historical inaccuracies. For instance, the (laughs) aforementioned Battle of Stirling was the Battle of Stirling Bridge and all of the (laughs) historians and critics have said, you know, you would think that, You might show a bridge in the Battle of Sterling Bridge. Mm. The lines and the dialogue don't feel long. Like the actors don't feel like they're overindulging. It feels like the director, Mel Gibson, is kind of overindulging at points. Like it seems like sometimes we just get at least one too many back and forth cuts on. For instance, the one that I always feel like takes way too long is when Mel Gibson, William Wallace rides back into town after murrin has been executed and he's like taking out the uh, English guards for the first time. Remember that? Back in his home little village. It just seems like that takes forever. Right. Okay, hit me with your Lazarus
1: Award for the high-key gospel moment of Braveheart. So my Lazarus Award goes to William Wallace's speech at the Battle of Sterling. For presenting
2: yourselves on this battlefield, I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army. Why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them. Oh! the English are too many. Sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. (laughs) I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men men, you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? No! Right? Against that? No. We will run. And we will live. Aye. Right. Fight, and you may die. Run, and you'll live. At least a while.
1: So this is the major turning point with the popular tide in Scotland um, and probably the most famous scene in the entire movie. Um, And I think there are two main appeals that Wallace makes in this really famous speech. Number one, I am William Wallace, you've heard legends about me and I am with you. And two, freedom alone is worth fighting for. So let's start with number one, I am William Wallace. Um, There's this growing legend that surrounds Wallace as he is trampled through Scotland, defeating all the English uh, armies in these small little villages, and we get this glimpse at this mythical figure, some guy who is taking out vengeance uh, on the English on behalf of his wife that has been murdered and is fighting for something bigger than himself for a country that he truly loves. And so what this brought me to biblically is the parallel of Joshua. And so Joshua is the leader of the Israelites and he follows an immediate succession to Moses. So we see God promised to lead the Israelites in the Old Testament into the promised land of Canaan, um, land of milk and honey, and Moses, who's the great leader of, uh, of the Israelites, dies. And so we're left with Joshua as the remnant, as the person who's gonna take control And so this is what we see in Joshua 1. This is God's promise to Joshua as he takes over uh, lead of the Israelites. He says in verses 6 through 9, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that uh, you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, Joshua 1.9, I think is a really popular verse within Christian culture. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Stand up and fight your demons. Um, I think... It has pretty strong parallels to Philippians 4.13 in terms of misuse of passage. Like, hey, you just got to be stronger. Uh, you know, st- pull up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go and, and fight the devil. Um, but here we see be strong and courageous listed three separate times, but also reasoning for that. It's not be strong and courageous for the sake of being strong and courageous. It's be strong and courageous because God, uh, our Father who created us, and has promised us, this: the promised land, is with us. And he actually goes before us in everything that we do. And so it's not, hey, go and accomplish this impossible task just by trying harder than everybody else. It's, hey, I am going to lead you in accomplishing this impossible task. And in being fixated on God and God's law, we get the, the beneficial consequences Of that decision to stay close to him um, which is ultimately entering into the promised land and similar with william wallace it's not men like be strong and courageous you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and uh learn how to fight the english it's hey, I, William Wallace, the one who conquers and defeats Englishmen, am with you. Would you not follow me into the battle? Because if I'm on your side, there's no such thing as true failure. And so I think that's the number one main point that Wallace hits in the speech. Any thoughts on that one so far?
0: Yeah, I think the sense of principle and ideals is extremely biblical right like we see over and over and over jesus does not care about numbers in the way that he cares about how things are done and why they're done right we see this in the local church it's not about making room for one more person at all costs it's about being faithful with what you've been given time and resources so that's one thing i think this movie argues and that speech argues that's really really great and fun fact i actually gave that speech at a high school volleyball state championship Uh, When there was a fire drill and everyone had to like evacuate into the parking lot. And I was just listening to the soundtrack with some of my friends in high school and we were kind of bumping it. And one of my friends kind of egged me on to like open the sunroof and stand up in the driver seat and just like give the Braveheart speech. And
1: I can't believe I actually did it, but I did. I 100% can (laughs) believe that you did it. I wish you had. Really? I wish you had the face paint. The the second point that William Wallace makes in the speech is that um, it's for freedom that that we've been set free, and that freedom alone is worth fighting for, and so there's there's probably no biblical passage that talks more clearly about freedom than Galatians five, and it's awesome. The voice I'm going to kind of center on is Galatians five one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So, like I said, Galatians five talks a lot about freedom, freedom from. Oppression of the law of the early church. There's kind of this debate between uh, Jews and Gentiles within the early church of is circumcision necessary and Paul's like absolutely not because uh, in Christ the law has been fulfilled and that there's no need to be circumcised or uncircumcised for that matter like the only way we are justified with God is through the blood of Christ and yet we're still arguing over these little intricacies of the law Um, And so Paul says, you've been set free from the law. Like, why do you keep saying that righteousness is fulfilled through it? And similarly, we get Wallace saying, we live under the oppression of the English. And yet, quote, you've come to fight as free men and free men you are. He simply asks them to live out of the identity of who they already are. He's not saying, hey, you need to fight to earn your freedom. I guess there is a little bit of that in there. But he's really saying, you guys are free men. Act like it. We've got that great scene with the generals afterwards when they're sitting uh, on horseback and they're like, great speech, now what? He's like, just be yourselves. Like, just be free men. Live out of the identity of being free men. This is what Galatians 5.13 says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. It's a very counterintuitive thought to our 21st century
0: Western American thinking, but What if freedom actually isn't the most number of options, having total autonomy over the most number of possibilities in a decision? What if freedom is the ability to make decisions in alignment with your true nature? Like is a fish free if it has the ability to go on to land or is it most free if it's confined to the sea? You know, if a fish can't breathe on land, is it really more free to be able to choose between
1: sea and land or is it more free... To have less options does that make sense yeah absolutely and i do agree that this is a hard this is a hard teaching like especially in the context of our like do whatever you want kind of society it's like a soccer field like you can't play soccer unless you have the lines in the field right <laughs> all right kev what is your lazarus award
0: i'm giving my lazarus award for the most high key gospel moment in brave art to william wallace's trial torture and execution <laughs> is pretty straightforward. The parallels here are frankly relentless. You can tell that Mel Gibson has an affection for the Jesus story by these final sequences and shots and the way that it's all constructed. So I'm just going to read some of the story of Jesus' trial, torture, and execution from Matthew 26 and 27. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Going to chapter 27 here. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Verse 13, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave no answer, not even to a single charge. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and beat him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is a long story. You can read it in all four gospel accounts, but the parallels here are specifically William's betrayal By the nobles and Lord Craig, you know, it's by the insiders. It feels very much like Judas. It wasn't that the English got to him. It was that William gave himself up to the nobles. Mm -hmm. Uh, William's silent refusal to recant before the English council, like all of these whirling around accusations and testimonies and reports. And Jesus is just silent, just as William is silent. The Gethsemane-like prayer before William Wallace's execution in his prison. uh, We get that moment with the princess. Uh, Refusing the drink that will dull his pain, the public procession, the spitting, the mocking, the tomato and vegetable throwing from a hostile crowd, the presence of a few hidden cloaked followers within that crowd, the binding and torture, the cross on which William Wallace is placed, seeing the bride, seeing Murren before he dies. Uh, and then William's death and then the revolution that it sparks there's a lot of things just visually going on too with the way the procession is framed and shot and how the crowd is depicted that draw a really clear parallel to you know since I was there for the Jesus execution I can oh, tell clearly. you it just it visually aligns they with have what seen we the know the passion of the Christ <laughs> exactly but <laughs> uh, which is
1: also Mel Gibson, so you know, yeah. no
0: surprises here in some ways. But that's my Lazarus Award.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty clear one-to-one parallel, and like we said, like Mel Gibson is also the director of The Passion of the Christ, and um, has talked a lot about his personal Catholic faith and wanting to portray that on screen. You were actually the one who's telling me that he's working on a sequel for The Passion of the Christ.
0: Yeah, it's slated for 2022. Apparently, it's in its third or fifth draft.
1: There's conflicting reports on the internet. Oh, okay. But, yeah, I think even from him being wheeled into the village and having all this fruit and stuff thrown at him as uh, he's literally laid on a cross and beheaded, I mean, I guess they could have actually put him up on a cross and crucified him. That probably would have been the only other way to make it uh, an even clearer parallel. But it was interesting even to see him winning over the crowd at the end of his death. There is also... um, you know, he's got his friends, he's got Hamish and, uh, the Irish guy, uh, was it Stephen that are watching him? Stephen is my name. Stephen is my name. Watching him, uh, clear parallel, I think, to the disciples and Mary watching Jesus die on the cross, but also interesting to see that some of the English villagers were begging for them to give Wallace mercy. It, it seems almost like, a, a la Gladiator, um, and <laughs> Russell Crowe winning over, uh, the coliseum a little bit so um yeah i think this is a it's a fantastic scene and pretty one-to-one parallel yeah and to what you said i think hamish and stephen really are clear peter and
0: john to me hmm. the two person inner circle we'll talk about that later i'm just going to spoil it right now william wallace is my jesus award we're going to go way more in depth on what we just talked about but in the
1: meantime oh. your mary magdalene award for the low for a low-key gospel moment in braveheart so we're gonna dive a little bit more into this scene here because my Mary Magdalene award is William Seane Murren at the moment of his death. And this is also my pulpit pick for a number of reasons, but let's dive right into it. And the great power of this moment, I think, is that is when he looks and sees Murren in the crowd smiling back at him. She is his reason that allows him to complete the ultimate sacrifice. And so we're led from this scene, to ask the question, well, what was that for Jesus? Like when Jesus looked out into the crowd, uh, and clearly Mirren here is a figment of her imagination, but metaphorically, like who was Jesus looking at? Who is Jesus' bride? And from that, we're led to believe that Jesus' bride is the church. And we're going to talk a little bit about what what is the the bride, and Jesus being the bridegroom, and and why is that an important biblical parallel to be to make here? So. There's lots of scripture talking about the church being the bride of Christ. We got Ephesians 5:25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might be present in the church to himself, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So again, this is showing that Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, uh, and in this beautiful uh, death and resurrection that Jesus goes through, he actually purifies uh, the bride that he might be able to be face-to-face with her that where she is without blemish. We've got Revelation twenty one two, uh, and this is John talking uh, about seeing a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. He says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We get this idea that uh, Israel and the New Jerusalem is a clear picture of who God's bride is, like Yes, the church corporately is God's bride, but also the individuals that make up the church uh, are the people that God looks at, um, as, he's, as the people that Jesus looks at as he's going to the cross because those are the ones he truly wants to be reunited with. Those are the people that he truly loves. And finally, we've got Isaiah 62.5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I think I'm a hopeless romantic, but I love watching YouTube videos of uh, brides walking down the aisle and then the groom reaction. I think it's become a lot more popular with thing recently, but just the pure emotion uh, of being able to see the groom face to face with his bride for the first time um, and recognizing that she is mine and I get to spend the rest of my life with her. And what a beautiful gift that is. And that's undoubtedly one of the most I think emotional moments of a wedding and such a clear depiction of God's love for us and so just to close it out um there's this one song that I know Kevin and I love a lot it's by uh our church band where we went to church in college a place called Lake Forest Davidson and uh this song called Emmanuel's Land that I think really captures it well and honestly Kev you might as well just pull the audio of the song and play it
3: the bride has not her garment but her dear bridegroom's face I will not gaze at glory but on my king of grace
1: in this scene we are Murrin, a victim of the world's brutality dead by the consequences of sin and yet we see eye to eye with William Wallace our bridegroom dying our death that the two of us might once again be together the understanding smile and the joyous hope reigns that now and forevermore William and Mern will be together we the church look upon his pain face the pain face of Jesus with hope that because of his sacrifice we are now in right relationship with him and with the Father we are William Wiles's bride we are Christ's bride and in that we get to rejoice the fact that we are now in right relationship with him, and we will be in white right relationship with him fully in one day um, after death. And so that's for me why this scene, uh, as William is looking Murren in the eye going to his death, uh, wins both my Mary Magdalene Award and my pulpit pick.
0: That's great. You know that I liked singing that song at Lake Forest. Probably good to note that it's not The lyrics are not original to Lake Forest. The song has existed before that. But I've got a question for you about specifically the relationship between William and the bride here. Is there any kind of way to extend the parallel into kind of the early, early parts of the movie where William is courting Murrin? Like, what what might we say about how he pursues Murrin as a bride before they're married?
1: Yeah, I love that he shows up in his village after traveling for such a long time and immediately singles her out. And is basically like she is the one that I want like no questions asked and not pursuing her in a coercive way but in a way that he's genuinely demonstrating his love for her and we see her as a result of that fall in love I think the parallel might be a little weaker in the sense that we're led to believe that this relationship is based on the fact that when her when Williams dad was murdered she gave him this little flower um and so in some ways she like endeared him herself to him because we didn't do anything to ever endear ourselves to god like god came and pursued us first and he's the one who gave us uh all of our worth so i would say that challenges it a little bit but i do like the just demonstrating of inherent love i agree yeah the
0: thistle which i think is the national flower of scotland and Mm, yeah um especially just like you said the straightforwardness of it like he has eyes for no one else. And the proposal is so unromantic or I, I don't know about unromantic, but it's so um, not like elaborately set up. She's like, is that what you call a proposal? And he's like, I love you. Always
1: have. He didn't even have an engagement photographer.
0: I mean, can you believe that? How, they sh- that. how
1: can I share it on Instagram?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so happy they put in that nude scene. We really needed that. Really? adds <laughs> <That's> a lot. <sighs>
1: All right, Kev, what's your Mary Magdalene award?
0: I'm giving my Mary Magdalene award to Robert the Bruce's passion to join William's cause.
2: This Wallace, Uh, he doesn't even have a knighthood, but he fights with passion, and he inspires. (laughs) And you wish to charge off and fight as he did, eh? So would I, eh? (laughs) Well Maybe it's time. It
3: is time
2: survive those men who bled the ground red at Falkirk they fought for William Wallace and he fights for something that I've never had and I took it from him when I betrayed him and I saw it in his face on the battlefield and it's tearing me apart all men betray Or lose heart. I don't want to lose heart! I want to believe. as he
0: does. This will be short and sweet here. So we see William Wallace rallying and inspiring several Scots and even the princess non-Scots in this movie. But we get kind of two case studies, I guess, of how that kind of character change happens for someone who maybe didn't want to join him initially but kind of does... Over the course of the story, and those two examples are Robert the Bruce and Queen Isabella. And so, I want to talk about how Robert the Bruce is kind of won over by Jesus's passion here. I just want to read Matthew seven twenty eight to twenty nine. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. That's a very short couple of verses there. That sort of gets at how Jesus had this. I don't know if charismatic is the right word, but the sense of awe that when people heard him who had never heard him before, there was this incredible authority and uniqueness to Jesus's way of doing things that was revitalizing, maybe challenging, polarizing, certainly. And I think Robert the Bruce gets a sense of this guy is different. Like William Wallace, he's not just like the other guys that we've sort of politically dealt with in the past in deciding who to put our money on in our quest for the throne. Our meaning Robert uh, and his father, you know, the X number of Robert, the Bruce's who have gone before him past land and title because he didn't charge, as the movie says. But I think Robert really feels this sense of like, maybe this guy does have Mm. something that I've never had, you know, and like maybe maybe this guy's sense of authority, um, his ability to rally people and excite them around a cause is something worth joining. Maybe this is actually superior to my
1: quest for the throne. Yeah. I, I love that. I think there's a lot of biblical and also movie parallels that we see here. If we're doing a Paul Award for biggest comeback story, biggest turnaround, I think Robert the Bruce is the is a pretty clear victor there. I love that he just tastes something that is worth fighting for and realizes that like, hey, I want to commit my life to this. And I think the the denial um, in that betrayal scene is so powerful. Like when we think about Peter denying Jesus three times and weeping, and then there's the moment when Peter runs out on the shore and eats breakfast with Jesus, and Jesus asks me like asks him, do you love me? Like, feed my sheep. He's like, Lord, you know I love you. And in many ways, Peter's denial of Jesus was incredibly formative in his own ability and willingness to go to the cross eventually and lead the early church. And so I think there's that parallel going on with Robert the Bruce as well, as he's kind of uh, faced with... Uh, a tough challenge and chooses to do it because he realizes that not doing it uh, would be like absolutely the worst option.
0: I agree. I also think it's cool how the change happens in the heart and kind of goes inside out more so than Robert having like a mental epiphany or kind of intellectual observation of like, oh, I didn't understand that. It's more so like this conversation right here.
2: I want what you want, but we need the nobles. We need them. Now tell me, what does that mean to be noble? Your title gives you claim to the throne of our country, but men don't follow titles, they follow courage. Now our people know you, noble and common, they respect you, and if you would just lead them to freedom, they'd follow you, and so would I.
0: So like we see that William really believes in Robert the Bruce and that he thinks that he can do this. And, you know, Robert is maybe sort of thinking, oh, like maybe I maybe there is another role for me to play here. Yeah. Anyways, give me to your
1: false prophet award for a non-biblical argument Braveheart makes. So my false prophet award is the idea that in living lives of defiance of tyranny, we can earn our freedom. What I mean by this, I think is is kind of cleared up in Romans 8, 1 through 4. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I think this is important to touch on here because we don't have to fight in any way to defeat sin. Like if we believe Ephesians two eight through ten that like is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves; it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And if we believe that God prepared in us good works, uh, which He prepared for us in advance to walk in then we don't have to do anything to earn goodness or anything to fight sin. Simply, we must believe in the hope of the gospel that has already been true about us. And so I think that's why this, the idea that we can win our own freedom, is the false prophet award for me.
0: Interesting. I guess I feel like your award says, if you win the battle, you win salvation.
1: But William loses the battle. But it feels like he wins. I think the William wins the battle because... He believes what is true about him, especially his version of Tetelestai as he lays on the, uh, the table about to be executed. And he says, freedom, like the true victory for the Scots is believing what is already true about them, not having to like go win a war to then declare freedom.
0: Got it. I'm giving my false prophet award to the glorification of revenge.
2: Do you remember me? I never did any It's my right. You're right. So I'm here to claim the right of a husband!
0: So this is a complex conversation because there are these fine differences, right, between pursuing justice in a noble cause and standing up to tyranny versus kind of a glorifying revenge. This is Romans 12, verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but
1: overcome evil with good. There is that fine line of toting revenge. And I think it stems back to what is our what is our motivation in doing this. But that again becomes sticky because if we're fighting for our country in a battle like is that idolatry of patriotism? Is that idolatry of our country? Are we truly holding fast to biblical ideals of like what we believe? to be a true sovereign God ordained nation and mission and I think that's been severely misused over the course of history. So I do think it is a tough question to ask, but I would say for the most part I think William Wallace strays on the on the edge of, of doing this righteously.
0: Yeah, and it might not even be that like William Wallace the character would condone the revenge as much as the way the film kind of portrays you should root for the revenge you know what i mean most movies just kind of do that and i think that shows that unveils you know we talk about how we want to be thoughtful about why themes resonate it seems to resonate with a lot of people the sense of making the wrong right and undoing past injustice i think that shows that we have a craving for that as human beings and that we like that story it's woven within our dna and that's because jesus Makes every untrue thing true, every wrong thing right in the end. Revelation 21, like you talked about. Yeah. So take me to your Jesus Award for the most Christ like figure
1: in brave art. So this is probably about as easy of a pick as it gets for me. It's got to be William Wallace. So I know you're going to dive a little bit more in depth into this, so I'm just going to hit some of the basics. Um, Sound familiar? He's born into an unjust world. He starts his quote unquote ministry as an adult, he defies tyranny. He's popular with the commoners. He's willingly led to slaughter. He dies with the hope uh, of one day setting his people free. Um, And he sees his bride as he passes uh, on to the next life. And so there's so many parallels, I think, between William Wallace and Jesus here. Again, uh, for Jesus, it might not be the English. It might be the Romans. Um, For Jesus, uh, it's not necessarily that he's seeing his romantic bride, but simply the church. For William Wallace, he's dying to free his people from English tyranny, whereas Jesus is dying to free his people from the confines of sin and death. And so I think William Wallace follows pretty clearly the hero's journey arc over the course of this film. We've got scenes of him as a child, uh, scenes of him as an adult, and scenes of him at his death. Basically, the only thing that we're missing here is a resurrection scene. And so... Honestly, I'm not even going to go with scripture because I know you're going to hit a bunch of it. Um, But in terms of the basic characteristics, choosing to uh, fight against tyranny, choosing to die on behalf of his people, I think this is a pretty clear Jesus pick for me. But I'll let you run with it for your Jesus Award.
0: Yes, so I have picked William Wallace. And this is my pulpit pick. And I've just given, I, I wanted to originally give a clip after all twenty of these, but I have decided that would be too long. You can email us at jesusandmovies@gmail.com, at and I would be thrilled to go more in depth here. But here's the basic format: like Jesus, William Wallace. Dot. 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 So here we go. Obey's his father. Grows up not doing what he'll one day do famously. Pursues his bride. Defends his bride. Enters an existing struggle. Offers new purpose. Tightens his inner circle encourages the disheartened, speaks truth, rallies new followers, unites by his passion, polarizes with his claims, dirties his hands, dignifies the lowly, challenges the authorities, rejects man's praise, prioritizes the cause, submits to betrayal, dies for his convictions, lives on in his following. I want to circle back to three, First dirties his hands. We see William Wallace on the front lines time and time again. He is not the general that sits back with the higher ranking troops and sends the infantry in. He is in the game from the get-go. Come on! Circle back to is polarizes with his claims.
3: Does anyone know his politics?
2: No, but his weight with the commoners could unbalance everything. Valorous for kisses ours, and so we must.
0: And lastly, the epic dies for his convictions.
2: Mercy, mercy, Jesus, mercy. <sighs> The prisoner wishes to say a word.
0: And so in all of these, I've just highlighted maybe three ideas that I think draw these parallels. The first is authority. I think, you know, William Wallace, I don't know if charismatic is the right word, but he he has this sense of unique authority, unique mission that I think Jesus embodies. This is Luke 4, verses 32 to 37. And they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for his word possessed authority. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus had such a captivating stage presence. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, 100%. I think the growing legend of who is this man and people coming out of the woodwork. I love that there are moments in Braveheart where the Scots are like, there are people coming out of the villages just to join him. And I think we see that very much with Jesus, people coming from all over. And I definitely agree with that.
0: The second one is controversy. And to this, I've turned to John 7. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, Have you not also been deceived have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search to see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So you can see just in the, the confusion and the fast hitting this and this and that and them and us and... No one knows what to make of this guy, but he's, he's clearly going to be politically important for all of these people in power, both, uh, through the government and through religion at the time. So that sense of controversy, lastly, I've got freedom. And this is like he said, the, maybe the goat passage for freedom in the Bible, Galatians five for freedom, Christ has set us free, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's kind of crazy. Like God set us free for freedom, like, so that we would be free. And that is what I
1: see with William Wallace. Like, freedom is a goal in and of itself, and that is the gospel. Man, there's so much to touch on here with William Wallace as a Jesus figure, but I love the idea of him giving dignity to the commoners. I know you hit on that a little bit earlier, but, um, man, he just gives them the opportunity to believe that they're just as worth it as the nobles. And in that upsets the entire social hierarchy of, England who's this great global power and I think that's what Jesus does in the Gospels right is that he he asks people in many ways he he dares them to believe that they are worth so much more than the way that the world treats them Uh, and so you know I don't think that Jesus typically comes off in these instances as being very challenging probably more pastoral but he's actually daring them to believe something that's incredibly challenging and an incredibly contrary to that culture's beliefs and so in that he he liberates them to live the lives that they are intended to live i think he also embodies the sense of seriousness in that
0: regard like not only is it challenging but it's like you are for me or you are against me and if you're against me like what happens to mornay and lachlan when they betray him on the valkirk battlefield like they absolutely get got curtains it's curtains for them <laughs> like he does not and I think we think Jesus, you know, he's petting little lambs like he, he's a nice guy, like he's so compassionate. And it's just a little bit of a misguided notion in some ways when we read the Gospels, like how not only how divisive this is, but how it really does demand conviction or not. And like there really is this kind of you're for me or you're against me because what he demands is so absolute by nature. It's so principled.
1: Yeah. I mean, those who do not bear fruit are like branches who will be cut off and thrown into the fire and burned, which we don't read as being violent or demanding. But if we're really to follow that parallel in the way that I believe it's meant to be followed, like that's, that's some serious stuff.
0: Yeah. And especially when you look in the Hebrew Bible, you see a God who's willing to really deal consequences for wrong action against him, especially from within his own. And and so much to the point that people think, you know, how could the God of the Old Testament be the same God as the New Testament? Like, people had this age-old question of, like, how could this even be the same God? Like, there's no way the God of Israel is the same as Jesus because they are fundamentally different in their approach to violence and compassion and things like that. And, you know, somehow we're to reconcile that this is one in the same and that maybe when we take Jesus a little more seriously— we see that he is this William Wallace figure who's on the front lines and is slicing people open with a sword and extreme with consequences. You know, go read Joshua. Go read Numbers. So that's it for the awards and now onto the Q&A. But first, announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment both in stores and online at omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere and use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. Doing so gives you ten percent off your purchase and another ten percent towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com. Code JIM for a discount and to support us. Now onto our Q and A and guest submission, and we have with us Mac Harris from Charlotte, North Carolina. Mac, how are you doing?
3: I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Thanks for having me, Kevin Graham.
0: Yeah, of course. So, could you share with us a way you've seen God reveal Himself, or the Gospel, or Capital T Truth to you, and something you've read, or watched, or listened to lately?
3: the most recent season of the mandalorian and one of the one of the cool things for me was seeing kind of the conclusion for now of the relationship between grogu baby yoda and mando you have this moment where he's saying goodbye to baby yoda for possibly the last time and baby yoda reaches out he touches the helmet and no words are spoken but mando knows exactly what to do and he uh, he like lifts his, his helmet off, and for the first time, uh, Grogu gets to see uh, Mando's face, and it's kind of this like father-son relationship that they've been developing, and, and Grogu is able to reach out and touch Mando's face for the first time, but uh, um, all that to say, I think it's a really cool uh, kind of picture of what Jesus invites us to do with kind of the armor and the the walls that we put up in our own life and it's it's convenient that mando's got this literal armor that he wears and this little helmet that protects him and it saves his life over and over and over again um but it's just this this cool picture of of how um, you know jesus invites us to you know take off the old self and put on the new self and to to put off um the things that we have built up around our lives to kind of protect us from the world around us and that that his love kind of pierces through all that and and encourages us to to take off the things that we have put on and uh to let him reach out and touch the real us and kind of see the real us and love the real us so i thought it was a really cool a really beautiful moment
1: i love that i feel like there's uh there's there's a couple ways to look at it right like we are yoda reaching out in like or I guess God is Yoda reaching out and touching us and we take off our armor for him. Or you could kind of reverse those roles, right? Like God coming in the form of Mando and then like taking his helmet off. He reveals the person of Jesus through which we get to see him more clearly.
3: Totally. Yeah. The incarnation. Uh, And and he's been the guardian the whole time. Right. And so there's kind of, you can, you can go either direction with it. I totally agree.
1: Okay.
0: Well, thanks for, thanks for chiming in, Mac. Thanks for uh, submitting this week.
3: Oh, thank y'all so much for having me. Yeah, thanks this is, man. This is awesome. Y'all, you do so much fun, fun stuff on the show. So, y'all are awesome.
0: Well, we appreciate it. That's Mac Harris from Charlotte, North Carolina. You Full can time. always email us at jesusandmovies at gmail dot com, and we would love to have you on or receive a submission, written or audio. So, on to the next. Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there, but before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Andy Simmons, Ben Dunbar, Bess McLawhorn, Clay Young, Courtney Carlock, Craig Carlock, Kristen Carlock, Daniel Lee, Graham Hooten, Heather Carlock, Jackson Carlock, Jacob DiRizzio, Janet Hooten, John Pabone, Ken Hooten, Kim Streamer, and Mike. Thank you so much for your support. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram, at Movies. February schedule will be up soon. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next if you'd like to support the jesus movies podcast patreon is our preferred way of support for one dollar a month you can become a patron and pick the movies get shouted out on the podcast and featured on our instagram so if you'd like to join the group please do so at patreon.com slash jesus movies or on the free patreon app anyone can always write us at jesusmovies at gmail.com and that is our preferred way of communication And lastly, if you're listening on Apple, we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to give us a review, even if it's just to give us a a star ranking out of five. Let us know what you think. That helps us to learn more about what's working and and what isn't, as well as to reach new people. And, And the feedback is helpful, so Graham and I would really be appreciative of that. Thank you all so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies Podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that like William Wallace, Jesus died to win your freedom once and for all, and we'll see you next week.